This podcast is produced by Clarence Valley Community Church. If you benefit from our ministry and you would like to support us, details can be found at our website, cvcc.com.au. There you can also find out more details about our church. If you have a Bible, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 1. If you have a look at Luke chapter 1 and you see 80 verses, you'll understand that our goals have to be fairly restrained. We are going to look at all 80 verses, but our point is to try and take away the major theme that Luke is trying to get at. So why don't we begin by reading our text. We're going to read Luke chapter 1, verses 1. We're going to read through to 38. And then we're going to skip across and have a look at the final section of Zechariah, so the birth narrative of John the Baptist in verse 57. Hear now the word of the Lord. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who, from the first, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's command and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once, when Zachariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the customs of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time of the burning of incense came, all the, assembly worship, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will never take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to their Lord God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteousness to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? Am I an old man and my wife is well along in years? The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my word, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. 
When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After his wife Elizabeth became pregnant, for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent an angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greeting, you are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what this kind of greeting might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The, Holy, the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you and, you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so that the Holy One will be born, will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she, who was said to be unable to conceive, is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. Don't miss that point. For no, God, no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Turning now to verse 57. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors, relatives, and the, that the Lord had shown her grace and mercy, they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were to name him after his father, Zachariah. But his mother spoke up and said, No, he is to be called John. They said to her, There is no one among your relatives who, is, who has that name. They made signs to her father to find out what, would be, what, would, what he would like the child's name. He asked for something to write on, a writing tablet. And with, to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, His name is John. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was set free and he began to speak and praise God. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for your word. We know that you will always fulfill it, that it will always come true what it is that you have spoken. And Lord, we want to express our trust in you and your word. We want to pray though, Lord, that you would help us always, that you would empower us always by the Spirit. Even those of us who you deem righteous, never to doubt, always to trust, always obey, and always rejoice in it. We thank you for these things and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Christian, you should have every confidence that what God has said is true and trustworthy. There can be only one correct response when God speaks, and that is one of confident trust, obedience, and rejoicing. 
The world around us would have you believe that your faith is a man-made religion, contrived in the imagination like fairy tales or mythology. Our modern world would have you believe that our generation, the one that walks around today, has, been, that has only been here for five minutes, has become the last word on what is right and good. This is simply based on the fact that our ideas are modern. Concepts that have stood for centuries and served our human race well for millennia are now understood to be outdated, foolish, bigoted, and damaging. This way of thinking shouldn't surprise you, though, when companies like Apple and Microsoft tell everyone yearly that the phone that you currently have now, today, that you're holding will be outdated tomorrow. This is the way that we think. We think that what happened yesterday is worse than what happens today. You're not the first to feel the pressure of a world that thinks that your religion is stupid and that your ideologies are at best irrelevant, if not damaging. You are not the first to hear someone say, did God really say? Luke is writing to an audience that's not that different from ours. You might feel like the 2,000 years might mean that his audience is somewhat different, but it's really not. Somebody wise once said, there is nothing new under the sun. Luke's world is plagued by moral relativism, political hostility, rival religious claims. The church has no wealth, no diplomatic power, no sympathetic society. There are people trying to destroy it from the outside. There are people trying to rip it apart from within. How does Luke address such an issue with his gospel? One, he reminds the church that God's words are true, that the message that has been passed down to them about Jesus, the Christ, the one whom fulfills every other word of God, that this message is reliable, they can trust it, they can build their lives upon it, that this can be the very foundation of everything else that they do. This message, therefore, changes everything. The other thing he does is he, he goes back to the beginning of the story about Jesus to fulfill, to show what it means to fulfill and to God and all his other words. What would it be to be submitted to him? What would it be to trust him? In the opening chapters of Luke, he gives examples of what it is to get it wrong and two examples of what it is to get it right. This is to remember. To get it right is to remember, to stand firm on God's word, no matter how foolish, outdated, offensive or bigoted you seem. Let God be true and everyone else a liar. If you have a look at your text, notice Luke's opening words. He acknowledges the first a few things. Firstly, that many others have been organizing, arranging, compiling an account of things that have been fulfilled among us. Notice two things here. Luke is writing about events that he and others, likely his audience, have experienced. This is not a guy who's writing centuries later after the events. He himself has experienced some monumental event. The word fulfilled here is interesting, though. We can't miss this. Fulfilled is the interesting word. The events that have taken place in his day fulfill or accomplish something else that has gone before it. This is the same word that's used in, by Paul in 2 Timothy 4 or 5. He says to Timothy, fulfill your ministry. 
Paul means finish what you started. The events that, that Luke is recounting for us are a, a finishing of what God had started. This gets to the very crux of the issue. From ancient times, God had promised that he was going to do something great to restore the relationship between humanity and himself. A relationship broken, not by him, but by humanity. From the initial promise, he began to paint a picture of what he was going to do. He was creating an appetite for the completed course. Every now and then, God would give a little taste, a bit more colour, add another note, all to prepare his people for what was to come in Christ. When Jesus finally arrived on the scene, God was shown to be faithful to his promise. Jesus fulfilled in Luke's lifetime what God had said he would always do. Why does it matter to us, though, that Luke was doing what others had done before that? Why, why does that matter? Why is that an important detail? I want you to think about this for a moment. Others have been doing what Luke is doing. Does that mean his work is redundant? Uh, we have within our text three other examples of doing what Luke is doing. Is Luke's work redundant? No. Uh, if you've not read it yet, I, I want to recommend it to you. There's a book called A Case for Christ by Lee Strobel's. And it's a series of interviews that he does with biblical scholars and experts. In one of them, in chapter two, he's having a conversation with a guy named Professor Blomberg. Blomberg talks about how the ancient world didn't have the luxury of passing on information in written form very often. It did happen, but not very often. But that was okay because they had a system of oral tradition. Information would be passed on through the use of stories based on eyewitness testimony. People would collect information about the events when they happen, memorize the portions of narrative, and then tell those portions to others. Eventually, many people would come to know and be aware of the story, the important events, because of the repetition of those events being repeated. This would mean that when a mistake was made, others would correct it. This is what Luke is doing. Luke is taking up a cultural convention of his day of repeating a story that's told over and over again. He's taking that and he's putting it into written form. Many others already know the story because these things have been fulfilled among us. Here's some reason for confidence here. He is retelling the story in the life of the eyewitnesses. All this to say that Luke is telling his readers a story that they could have easily contradicted or corrected in their own lifetime. But it never was. And in fact, everything that we have in Luke, Mark, John, and every other account only serves to reinforce that everything that Luke tells us is true. Luke was never contradicted. As a testimony, as one who steps forward and is, gives a testimony, he was never contradicted. There are different perspectives, and sometimes there is different material covered, but they never contradict one another. Humanly speaking, this is why we can trust the material given to us by Luke. He reports eyewitness testimony when the eyewitnesses were still alive, and they could have contradicted him. 
As a man who lived through these events himself, with people who also had undertaken similar tasks, Luke really goes on out on a limb here. This is, this is Luke going out on a limb. He would only do so if he was sure of the events he was recounting, even, other, even though other accounts were around and could confirm it. Let's not miss what he does under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, though. All that Luke is doing here, all the compiling, all the work of a historian, all of the confidence that we gained knowing that these, this work happened in the lifetime of the witnesses, during the lifetime of other people who were around for the event, all of the confidence that that gives us does not make up even slightly for the confidence that we have because of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, Peter says this, another eyewitness here, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honour and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Now, what's, what's Peter talking about here? Peter is talking about an event that takes place in the life of, of Jesus' ministry during the transfiguration. Jesus is transfigured and this, this, the human glory is done away with in Jesus and, and you see his divine glory. We don't, but Peter did. Peter's saying, we were eyewitnesses. We're not, we're not making this stuff up. We saw it with our own eyes. How good would that be? What would you give as an individual to stand on the holy mountain with Jesus and see him transfigured before you? See his divine glory shine forth to you? What would you do for that? It would seem pretty impressive. But he goes on to say, he says in verse 19, we have this prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention, as a lamp shines in the darkness until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophet was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is Peter's point. Peter's point is, is that within Scripture you have something to be more confident in than Peter did as an eyewitness to the transfiguration of Jesus. If you think about it, Peter was there and he missed the point, if you know the story. He, he's overwhelmed. He doesn't really get the point of it at the moment, though. Peter says, because of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you have a more sure word than he did as an eyewitness of the account. So all of this to say, ultimately, you have great reason for confidence in the text of Scripture. Let nobody take your mind away from that truth. Let nobody tempt you to doubt. Have confidence. The Lord has spoken, and His wisdom is greater than any other wisdom of man. No prime minister, no president, no state premier can say, that he knows better than the word of God as it has been given to us. 
Luke gives us some stories about what is the right and the wrong response. We're going to look at them very quickly. We get this idea of the birth of John the Baptist. Uh, Zechariah, a priest of God, stands up and he begins to fulfill his duty as a priest and he's worshipping God. And an angel comes to him, an old man by now, who has not been able to have children, and says, you're going to have a son. Now this story, if you know the story of the Bible, should be very familiar to you. This happened a lot. God used the barrenness of people in the Old Testament again and again and again to demonstrate that he was going to take what was impossible for man and produce something great for his glory. Impossible for, for man to reproduce unless God opens the, wo- the womb, but the moment that he does, he brings something great about it. Think of Abraham and Sarah. Think of Hannah. Zechariah, though, would have been very familiar with the story of Abraham. And when the angel of the Lord comes to him and and Zechariah's response is almost unfathomable. And you see it in the response of the angel. He says, how can I be sure about this? I'm an old man. Have you never met Abraham? Did Did you not hear about him? How can I be sure of this in verse 18? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. This is the angel's response. I love it. Verse 19, the angel says to him, I am Gabriel, which by the way means God is my hero. He says, I stand in the presence of God. I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. Now, if you're looking for a sign about how you could know that God's word was going to be certain, if you have an angel stand in front of you, that might be a pretty good indicator. This is his response from the angel, though. He says, And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day that this happens, because you did not believe my word, which will come true at their appointed time. Basically, the angel Gabriel says, Because you did not believe... Because you spoke instead of listened, now you will not speak. You will be silent and you will have faith. And so Zechariah serves as a, as a response of a man of what not to do. This is what not to do. If God speaks, this is what not to do. Don't question God. Even if it seems impossible, even if all, in all worldly wisdom it seems wrong. Now, we shouldn't forget that, that the Scripture tells us that, that both he, that both Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous people. I think this is part of the reason why Luke recounts the story. He's, he's talking to an audience, his immediate audience, who are Christians, who are, who are by all accounts righteous, who are good people. And we get this point here that even good people, righteous people, can be tempted to doubt the, the word of the Lord. We shouldn't doubt the word of the Lord. Let everything else fall away. If it seems impossible, if it seems wrong, but it's in the word of God, it's more sure than anything that you or anyone else can come up with. Now, one of the things that was true in this day and age is that it was one thing for a man not to have a son. It was very different for a woman or a wife not to produce a child. There were certain things that tied a woman into her society. 
And one of the main obligations upon her was that she would produce an heir for her husband, that she would carry on his family name. Now, this is particularly important when you realise that he's a priest and that she is from the line of Aaron. These guys are producing other priests. And so the very fact that she has never been able to bear him a child, particularly a son, is a reproach for her. But when she is pregnant, when she discovers, in verse 24, when she discovers that she is pregnant, she puts herself into seclusion. Now, this is pretty typical of the day. She just does what's normal. And she rejoices. She's not bitter. There's no... There's no sense within Elizabeth about, well, it's about time, God. I have been praying all this time. I have been searching and wrestling all this time. No, it's, it's rejoicing. He says, the Lord has done this for me. She says, in these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. She says, God's been gracious to me. There's no sense of, I deserve this. This is my right. I must be defended. She sees this as a grace and a kindness from God, an answer to prayer. And she rejoices. Mary as well is the quintessential example of what it is to respond in faith to God's word. Think about Mary. She's pledged to be married, she's engaged, she's young probably about the age of 14. She's going to be married to a man named Joseph, but she's not yet a virgin, but a descendant of David nonetheless. She's almost in her society a nothing, a no one, barely noticed. And then the angel of the Lord comes to her and says, greeting, you are highly favoured. You're highly favoured by God. The Lord is with you. I don't think it's any trouble then that Mary is troubled by the response. Really, the Lord is, is thinking about me? I'm highly favoured? God has picked me? Verse 30, the angel of the Lord says, Do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Jesus. He will be great and be called the Son of God Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. That's his word. If you're going to look at these two people, if you're going to look at the priest, one who's been anointed and, and consecrated and able to come and stand on the very altar of God, if you're going to look at him or you're going to look at little young Mary and say, which one is more likely to respond in faith to God, we'd probably have said the priest. But Mary, in her small stature, in her humility, shows up even this righteous, godly man in her response to the word of the Lord. She says in verse 38, she says, I'm the Lord's servant. Mary answered, may your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel of the Lord left her. This is what it looks like to respond to the word of the Lord in a faithful manner. 
Certainly she's a righteous person. Certainly she's a good person. But she wasn't great. She wasn't grand. A lot like Elizabeth, she's yet to live up even to her potential. But God takes those little things, those simple things, those humble people, and he often uses them in this way. You'll see this again and again throughout Luke. He uses the least likely person in order to demonstrate that it could be no other, that that the only thing that's working and taking effect is the very word of God itself. But there is a righteous way to respond. With faith with obedience, with rejoicing. It's not all done for Zechariah. If we jump across to verse 57, we see that the time comes for Elizabeth to have a baby. The Lord's word has been fulfilled to her. And she gives birth to a son, and her neighbours and relatives hear that the Lord had had done and shown great mercy, and they share her joy. This was all part of the promise that the angel of the Lord had said. And on the eighth day, they come to circumcise the child. Now, Zachariah is still not able to speak. And so they're going to name him after his father, Zachariah. This is a great honor, a privilege. If you have a child, a son particularly, it was, it was a privilege to have that child named after you. They are the one who are carrying on your lineage. They're going to do the things that you were doing. This is part of what sonship is. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he is to be called John. Notice her obedience. That's what they were told to do. And they said to her, there's no one in your relatives that has that name. They're basically saying to him, this is not how we do things. We don't do things this way. We name the child after somebody that you're going to show honor to. That's our cultural convention. Why are you going against the cultural convention of our day? That's our wisdom. But her response is one of obedience. The the word of the Lord came to me and said, through my husband, his name will be John. Therefore, your cultural convention be done with. I will do what the Lord of the word, the word of God says. And so they made signs to the father to find out what he would like to name the child. And so he asked for a writing tablet. And everyone was astonished when he wrote, his name is John. There's been a heart change in Zechariah. Rather than choosing the honour for himself, rather than choosing the cultural convention, rather than choosing what is just the easy thing to do, he goes against it all and he's obedient to the word of the Lord. He obeys, he responds in faith, and he's set free. Verse 16:4. immediately his, tongue, his mouth was open and his tongue was set free and he began to speak and praise God. This is the righteous response to the word of the Lord. Forget the cultural convention. Forget the wisdom of the day. Forget even your own wisdom. If, if the word of God contradicts it, if the word of the Lord comes to you, the righteous response is to respond in faith, in obedience, and rejoicing. Ultimately, both these families would have to trust that God was able to actually bring about everything that he'd promised. There's so much promised about the ministry of John. There's so much promised about the ministry of Jesus. They would have to actually trust God that he would bring it about, particularly Mary. Mary, in her response of faith, has been put in a really precarious position. 
Likely the rejection of the man that she's been betrothed to. Likely the rejection of her community. Likely the rejection of her very own family. But she responds and says, I am the Lord's servant. And she is an exemplar of what it is to be a righteous, faithful person. And so think about this for a moment. We spoke earlier about the the cultural paradigm that we're in, the difficulties that we are facing, the pressure from the outside world. There is a pressure. There is a pressure to conform to the world around us, to what society is asking us to do. But you must resist. Righteousness demands that you submit yourself to no other authority as your highest authority other than the Word of God. Righteousness demands that you will respond in faith, in obedience, and rejoicing. Count the cost. Trust God. He will be faithful. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for your word, and we do trust you. We do love you. We do rejoice in you. And we ask, Lord, that in our day you would rise up in our defense. But Lord, if you don't, if this very world passes away, we will still have you. And so, Lord, we have all things that are good. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.